Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for today. Today is not only the Lord's Day, this is the Sunday before Christmas, and this is the day that you have made. So we are rejoicing and we are being glad in it. We are in your house, the best place to be in on this day. To lift your name up on high, to hear what you have for us today. I pray that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Recorded human history is filled with all kinds of rulers which, when given absolute power, resulted in megalomania and just some plain strange authoritarian behavior. Some of the strange governmental actions were just plain cruel. For instance, a ruler of the Ottoman Empire, who the character Dracula was based on, was a man named Vlad the Impaler. Any guesses as to why he was called Vlad the Impaler? <laughs> it doesn't take much imagination. There was only one punishment during Vlad's rule, whether you murdered someone in cold blood or you just stole a loaf of bread. And let's just say it wasn't a slap on the wrist. Regardless, though, I mean, look at that stash right there. You, can't, you just can't beat that. Fu Sheng only ruled for two years during the Qin Dynasty in China in the 300s AD. As soon as he came to power, he outlawed words such as without, devoid, or lacking, making it so that if you were caught saying any of these words, you were immediately sentenced to death. Fu Sheng started making a name for himself when he started executing important state officials just because he was in a mood. And he was also a heavy drinker who would make important and crucial state decisions while drunk. Those two years would have lasted longer if his own family members hadn't taken matters into their own hands. You know what's bad when your own family wants to off you. Who can forget Herod the Great of Christmas fame? In fact, Caesar Augustus, whose piecemeal census in Luke chapter 2 is the whole reason why Joseph and very pregnant Mary end up in Bethlehem from Nazareth. Caesar Augustus made a point when he did that, to make call this census, of forcing Herod to take stock of the taxable property in his puppet realm because Herod had tried Augustus' patience way too far by that point. So that's why we see this happening primarily in Judea. The straw that broke the camel's back was when Herod inexplicably executed a group of Roman dignitaries. Herod's mental instability, paranoia, and cruelty resulted in the execution of his own wife, children, and other family members, and then climaxed in his ruthless decree of murdering all the male babies around Jerusalem towards the end of his life. After an unsuccessful suicide attempt, Herod died from a prolonged illness in 4 BC. Some of the Roman emperors really take the cake, though. For instance, the Roman emperor Caligula was first welcomed with open arms, since his predecessor, Tiberius, was so awful. But about six months into Caligula's reign, everything drastically changed. Caligula fell dangerously ill and pretty much lost his mind from the experience. 
Following his physical recovery, Caligula declared himself a god and built a bridge from his palace to the temple of Jupiter so he could have regular conversations with the deity. Caligula then tried to appoint his horse as a consul to the Senate. <laughs> Some of you might be thinking his horse may have been a may have been made a better official than some of the U.S. officials today. After, that's what you guys are thinking. I didn't say that. After a few years, and Caligula started ruthlessly executing his political rivals, his own guardsmen killed him. None of this should be surprising, though. Why? Because all of these rulers were human, and as such, full of depravity, brokenness, and ruthlessness. Absolute authority can really go to some people's heads, and the results are disastrous. But the scripture passage we're covering this morning describes one global ruler with absolute authority who not only won't exhibit bizarre behavior during his reign, but will reign with perfect justice and perfect love. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be rounding out John chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be in the last two verses of the chapter. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. I want us all to see this together. Or you can look it up on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 3, verses 35 through 36. We're going to start with verse 35 and we read, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And these last two verses of John the Baptist's last recorded words, John wraps up and reiterates the preeminence of all of who Jesus is, especially in contrast with John. John knew his entire life's purpose and mission was to prepare the way for and transition into everything being about Jesus. As such, he probably knew his life was also coming to a close as he sees the beginning of this transition start to take place. So with his last recorded words, John wants his disciples to understand as best as possible Jesus' authority over not only spiritual matters, but as the messianic king over the entire world. These words and their message fit quite nicely into the celebration of Christmas this upcoming week. Jesus was not just a baby born to bring hope, peace, and light into this dark world. His Messiahship included both the suffering servant aspect found in Isaiah and the eternal king aspect. He was born to be the sacrifice for sin, to rise again from the dead, and ultimately to return to rule this entire world as the perfection of a king. Both of these two aspects are conveyed in the angel's birth announcement to the terrified shepherds. We read in Luke chapter 2, the Savior Yes, the Messiah, the Lord, you see there, Savior and the King aspect, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus' rule does not come from some sort of 
self or even human governmental perceived divine right to rule like the European kings of the Middle Ages. He does not give it to himself to abuse and be cruel with. Jesus' kingship is given to him by the Father, the creator of the universe, and the plan for that universe. This is huge theologically, which we'll see when we get to the next verse. But Jesus' kingship was not taken by forcibly conquering other people and ruthlessly forcing his rule over them. It was wrought in love. In verse 35, it tells us that the kingdom was given to Jesus by the Father because of how much he loves him. And we'll see the extension of that love in the way he rules again when we get to the next verse. Similar to what John the Baptist has already said in verse 31, Jesus is the only one who, that, who has ever existed to be who he is. What I mean by that is this. Just as every other spiritual or religious leader in human history was or still is only merely a human being, no matter who we're talking about, they are bound by human limitation and sin. Jesus is the only one who came down to earth from above. Jesus is the only spiritual or religious leader who is also God. And here in verse 35, John reiterates that distinction from every other king or leader who has ruled over any nation, territory, city, state, or tribe. The king comes from above and as such has been given all authority in every single way by God the Father himself. And this king is no mere human, for he is literally one of the members of the Trinity who has enjoyed perfect communion, relationship, and love with the Father and the Holy Spirit, whom we talked extensively about last week. Famously recounted every Christmas season, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah declared, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Again, even here, we also see that it's not Jesus who makes this happen. It's the Father, the Lord of heaven's armies. And because of that, it will happen. We already catch a glimpse of this on the very night Jesus was born. It wasn't some kind of angels like Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life, where he calls himself an angel, second class, and he's still earning his wings. No, the way it's described in Luke 2 is that this is the royal, angelic, military delegation declaring the arrival of the eternal king. These were warrior angels, specially designated to bring the announcement of the messianic king to the world. Ironically, it wasn't to another royal delegation. It was to the lowest social class in society and those who everyone else 
was disgusted by. As Isaiah prophesies, the kingdom of Jesus will be the perfection of justice, peace, and fairness that this world has never before seen. Can you imagine a world where there is perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect fairness? Sure, there have been some good rulers in human history, but none of them or their rules were perfect. But Jesus' rule will be perfect. The writer of Hebrews says, quoting David in Psalm 45, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else ever before. We see the fingerprints of the love of God, the Father, towards the Son throughout the prophecies of that Son's rule. Just like with most of the other messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, all these prophecies of Jesus' kingship have a now and not yet understanding to them. We get that both here in verse 35 and in verse 36. Here, 2,000 years ago, John the Baptist stated that the Father has given all things into Jesus' hand. Jesus himself also told his disciples right before he ascended back to heaven, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. But this royal authority will ultimately come to fruition when Jesus rules this whole world from his throne in Jerusalem. When he returns, defeats the armies of the world at the Battle of Armageddon, and sets up his earthly kingdom, everyone on earth will finally submit to his authority. Revelation 17, 14 tells us, Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them. Why? Because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. This now and not yet aspect of Jesus' authority also pertains to the spiritual world. 1 Peter 3.22 says, Now Christ has gone into heaven. He is seated at the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and all the authorities and all the powers accept his authority. First Peter 3.22 tells us that after the resurrection of Jesus, giving the KO punch to the satanic realm, now Christ has gone into heaven, and all authorities and powers accept his authority. It's an acceptance of authority by submission through overwhelming defeat. The realm of Satan thought they had won the spiritual war they had waged against the human soul and the savior of that soul for thousands of years when they heard that so-called Messiah say, it is finished. But those words were only the beginning. Jesus holds all authority in the spiritual world right now. Satan thinks he has control over this world, and when you look at it, it certainly appears that way, but it's not. 
Jesus now and will always hold the power and authority over the kingdom of darkness. He's been given the very keys to death and the front door of hell for that matter. Jesus himself has said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. The kingdom of darkness has already been defeated. Jesus already holds the victory over Satan. In fact, we do too, through the indwelling of Jesus' indwelling Holy Spirit. The Apostle John writes elsewhere, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? During Jesus' earthly messianic rule, however, Satan will start to feel the authority of Jesus over him. For the entirety of the 1,000-year messianic kingdom, guess where Satan's going to be? Locked up, rendering him absolutely powerless to have any influence on the world Jesus will rule. And following his freedom and subsequent second military defeat against Jesus, Satan will be thrown into the same lake of fire for eternal torment. Then the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false, pro false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This does not mean, though, that we shouldn't be constantly on our guard against him and his schemes. In fact, scripture is very clear that we must be. Satan knows he's already defeated and already knows his days are numbered. So in the meantime, he's trying to cause as much destruction as he can and drag the name of Jesus through the mud as much as he can. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. This spiritual authority of Jesus extends to the human soul as well. That's what brings us to verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. This is about as simple as you can get right here. As I've explained multiple times, the world likes to make this a lot more complicated. But it's no more complicated than this one comparison. The, the basis for your eternal fate is one. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you will do. It doesn't matter what you think makes sense or what you think is fair. It doesn't matter about any of those things. We are all sinners in need of a Savior to rescue us. No one's sin is greater than anyone else's. We're all on a level playing field, but that level playing field is all headed towards one place. Since humanity chose to love themselves more than God and we simply confirm that mindset with the decisions we make every day, the fitting and just consequence is for us to lose that life and lose anything having to do with God. We all will still face a physical death, but it's what the Bible describes 
as the second death, which is to be feared. The second death is banishment from God's presence to a place where God, who all of who God is, his love, goodness, peace, joy, does not exist. The absence of all of that results in a place called hell, where there is eternal physical and emotional torment. That's what we all deserve for breaking God's standards. You don't have to like it. You don't have to think it's fair. That's the just consequence. And we were hopeless to change that fate. And still are hopeless to change that fate. No amount of good deeds makes up for the fact that we've already broken God's standards. What we really have to think about is gratitude. That God, in his love, decided to make any kind of a way, one way to be rescued from all of this. Again, the just payment for sin is death, both deaths. And since we had no hope of paying that payment to escape that, other than simply paying what we already owe, God chose to pay that payment on our behalf. So the second person of the Trinity, the Son, entered the world. He was born of a virgin at the perfect time, having no human father, but being conceived by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit in order to preserve his holy righteousness as the spotless sacrifice for our sin. He then lived a sinless life, following the standards of God perfectly so that he could hang on a cross and take the sins of the world our sin upon himself and pay the debt we had no hope of paying first peter then tells us he descended into hell in connection with the second death not to experience it for himself but to declare his victory and kingship authority to the demonic realm imagine celebrating what you think is your own victory of evil and then having the doors kicked down by the guy you thought you were finally rid of destroying god's messianic salvation plan and having him to say party's over boys uh, you lost i won i own you now but the one basis for your salvation from hell is that you have to take Jesus and his payment on your behalf for yourself. You have to come to a place in your life where you come to God, repenting of the person you once were and the sin you were condemned by, asking God for forgiveness only based on what Jesus did for you. You then take Jesus as having paid for your your sin as your substitute, and knowing that the only way he was your substitute was that he was also God. And then because he's God and because he's the true king over both worlds, the physical world and the spiritual world, he's also the king over the rest of your life. And you live the rest of that life to serve him. That's what believing in the Son in verse 36 really means it's believing in what he did for you and taking that for your own and making that who you are now the free undeserved gift that jesus as king then gives to you is escape from his judgment and the inheritance of eternal life
See, you don't just automatically get eternal life simply for sort of being a good person and never killing anyone. It doesn't work that way. You have to take Jesus for all of who he is, Savior and King, as your own personally. This is the now aspect of Jesus' kingship, personally making him king over your life now. There is also a not yet aspect of Jesus as our personal king, which we'll get to in a minute. You've never come to this place in your life of repentance and taking Jesus as king. You simply continue down the same road you've always been headed towards, judgment and eternal condemnation. That's why John the Baptist words it the way he does. The wrath of God will simply abide on or continue with that person. That's why we also have verses like John 3, 17 through 18 that say the exact same thing. Nothing about this is surprising. What you may be surprised by is that if you never answer God's call to place your trust in Jesus for your salvation, whether you claim to be an agnostic or you believe that simply being a good person and believing in some kind of higher power is good enough, you'll simply continue down this road and end up in the same exact place as the flat-out atheist or those who despise and even mock Jesus. There is only one basis whether or not you ever personally surrendered all of who you are to Jesus as Savior and King. If you did, you are promised eternal life both now and in the future. If you never did, you're given another promise that you will experience God's wrath both now and in the future. Here's the now aspect of God's wrath. For the For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's from Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is defined by biblical scholars as the necessary response by God towards injustice, sin, and evil. I'm not going to get into specific examples of this now, but we should never underestimate God's wrath towards sin in the world now. The good news for believers is that while we will still experience suffering in this life, what we're experiencing is not God's wrath. It may be discipline, it may be consequences, it may be teaching experiences. It may be to draw us closer to him. It may be for reasons we will not know or understand, but it's never the wrath of God. How can I say this? Because God's wrath is God's condemnation towards sin and evil. And what have we been, as believers in Jesus, freed from? So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. The not yet aspect of God's wrath is what is described in end times theology as the seven year great tribulational period. If you remember from last week, right now the Holy Spirit is preserving the world and keeping back the full wave of unfettered evil upon it until it's time for the Antichrist to be fully revealed. 
That will happen at the midway point of the tribulation, as 2 Thessalonians tells us. During both halves of the tribulation, also described in Matthew 24, the world will experience an unprecedented level of evil and sin. Ultimately, what this will be is the wrath of God poured out on this evil world as payback for all the unspeakable acts of cruelty, abuse, sin, depravity, and flat-out evil that have occurred in it for thousands of years. And at the end of everything having to do with this world, we already read that Satan and his partners will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. But what about all those who never answered God's call to put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and King? And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life, that is, they put their faith and trust in Jesus before they died, was also thrown into the lake of fire. The fulfillment of the condemnation and wrath of God. There's no escape other than through Jesus. But one of the blessings of believers in Jesus not being under God's condemnation and therefore wrath is being rescued from all of this. Not just the lake of fire, but the tribulation as well. Since the tribulation is characterized by God's wrath and God's condemnation, what will rescue us from this experience is Jesus partially returning for us at an event known as the rapture. And get this, Nothing else, prophecy-wise, stands in the way of this happening. So it could happen at any moment, even five seconds from now. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 describe for us this event known as the rapture. Jesus will appear in the clouds and call up all those who put their faith in him for their salvation. Those of our believing loved ones whose souls have already gone to be with Jesus, he will bring back with him, raise up and glorify their bodies. Then, if any of us are still alive at that point, we will also be caught up or raptured along with them and also be given glorified bodies free of sickness, pain, and death. Either way, we're going to be with Jesus. And 1 Thessalonians 4 promises that we will physically be with Jesus for all of the rest of eternity. What this means is that we'll be with Jesus in heaven while all of God's wrath is being poured out on the earth during the tribulation. Then when Jesus fully returns and annihilates all those who have been attacking Jerusalem during the battle of Armageddon, guess where we'll be? Right behind him. <laughs> I already referenced this earlier, but here it is again. Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings. Here it is. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Immediately following Armageddon, Jesus will set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, during which Satan will be locked up. Where will we be? With Jesus, helping to serve him in his kingdom on earth. 
Remember, we'll have those glorified and eternal bodies at that point. And then following another battle during which Satan tries one more futile time to attack Jesus and fails horribly again, God will destroy this current world with fire and create a brand new heavens and earth. And we will get to spend all of eternity enjoying that new earth with God dwelling among us. Emmanuel fully fulfilled. What does all this have to do with Christmas? Because it all started on that night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Really, nine months before that. But in Bethlehem, the angels gave the military pronouncement that the king had officially entered the world. It was a new age. And as Jesus' predecessor, his cousin, John the Baptist, says here in his last recorded words, all those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus as both their Savior and their King would receive eternal life. All those who don't simply get the result of the abiding wrath of God, eternal condemnation in a place that epitomizes the wrath of God. So if you've never come to the place in your life where you come to God in repentance and make Jesus your Savior from your sin and the King over the rest of your life, make this Christmas, even right now, the point when you do that. We have no clue how much time any of us have left in this life. Don't risk where you'll spend eternity. If you've made Jesus your Savior and King as we celebrate Christmas this upcoming week, let us remember everything that's wrapped up in that. Let us rejoice in that we know who the Messiah is, along with all the prophecies that have and will pertain to him. Jesus is the King, both now and forevermore. As evil as this world is right now, someday it will, and everyone in it will realize Jesus as its king, and every knee shall bow. And just as on that night in Bethlehem, and when Jesus comes back for us, and what we sang about earlier in the service, what a glorious day that will be. Amen? Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we thank you for these last words of the last words of John the Baptist. We know what will happen to him shortly after this, that he'll be arrested and beheaded in prison. We know that he knew what his life's purpose was, and it was to declare to the world who Jesus really is, both Savior, the Lamb of, the wor- the Lamb who would, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, and the King of that world. Let us rejoice and all that the Son is, and all who Jesus is for us, in that he is both our Savior from our sin and the King over our lives, and someday will completely and fully rule over this entire earth. Let us remember that. Let us keep that in mind, even as the headlines scream otherwise, and doom and darkness. We know that there is a true King, And there will be a day when he will establish perfect perfect justice and perfect peace on this world. Let us look forward to that. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.